This is Patrick Chapin, and you're listening to Yo MTG Taps. Patrick Chapin, longtime pro player, uh, hey, up, man? <laughs> author of Next Level Magic, um, and uh, former R and D member, right? Is, is yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I actually forgot entirely about that until I mentioned it yesterday. Um, how, how? Yeah, which sets did you work on with that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't even know the story behind well, that. Well, uh, kind of collaborated with him over a longer period of time, but uh, I was actually out in Washington during uh, during. Uh, the very tail end of Scourge, um, Mirrodin, and then the beginning, the very, very beginning of Darksteel. Okay. Although, for the record, when I was there, Archibald Ravager cost three. I'm oh, just okay. saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. So no, no blame there, right? Um, did you, and I, I kind of, after uh, remembering that last night, I was thinking about it, and I think, did you design Telling Time? Or did you have? Oh no no no! That, but, so, yeah yeah. Telling time was a card. Like, uh, telling time was a card that I that I made. That's just one of my uh, sort of a design I just stick into a lot of files. Like uh, I always suggest as a library manipulation spell. And uh, I actually, when they ended up putting it in, I wasn't even out in Washington at that point. Okay. I was kind of uh, corresponding with them through the mail. But um, uh, I think Brian Schneider put it in the design file as uh, Chapin Pulse or whatever. Oh. <laughs> and I guess eventually they changed the name. But yeah yeah, I guess it wouldn't have, wouldn't have worked as well. Um, so it, I I can't remember exactly how telling time works. It was a, a blue and uh, yeah, one and a blue. Stuff. You look at the top three cards of your library, put one on top, one on the bottom, and one in your hand. You know, so very brainstormy, very impulsive. Yeah, I, I very, love that it, kind of stuff. You know, kind of reminds me of uh, Jace the Mind Sculptor. Have you seen what he does? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jace is pretty good. Um, I, I guess. All right, well, it's louder. Yeah, let's just chill, chill, chill for just a second. I guess there's a very happy crowd that's going to be passing by us very shortly. They might not even realize that we're on camera right now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like every other. Yeah, 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 we've yeah, been yeah. Down, There's been nobody down here. It's crazy. Okay. No. So, um, how did you actually get into magic? What's your origin story? Uh, yeah, they invented it. No, so yeah, that was it. No, I, was, I, I guess I was playing Dungeons and Dragons uh, as a kid, and one day my mom was at Ryder's Hobby Shop and brought home some packs of Arabian Nights, and uh, she didn't really, like, I guess the guy who sold her the packs didn't really explain that perhaps she should get a, a, one of the, the unlimited rule books or whatever it is, because uh, she didn't, you know, she just got the packs that he right. suggested, and she showed them to me, and I didn't know what to do with them. Like, right, okay. right. <laughs> so I went back to the campaign, you know, and, but... Uh, and then a few, mo- you know, a little bit, wa- a little bit later, um, you know, X number of months later, uh, a f- a cousin of my-, my cousin Matt Emmerich actually showed me 
the uh, showed me the game in the McDonald like in some McDonald's explained the rules to me and 24 hours later another friend of mine independently discovered the game and oh, showed wow. it to me and so just started getting to, into it immediately you know and so uh, um, at first I was just playing with their cards but because uh, I was too young to drive anywhere to go get my yeah. cards or whatever and then I ended up buying some uh, some The Dark and some uh, Fallen Empires and some Legends but um, yeah I've just been playing ever since you know yeah. like I I also uh I initially was into a lot of sports, and I suffered a career-ending injury that made me sit out of football for a year, oh, wow. and that's when I got much heavier into cards, and then I just never really got back into to playing sports as competitively because I was just really into magic, you know? Right. That, that's interesting. So you played football. What yeah, position I, did you play? I was a running back. Running back? That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I played a lot of sports, actually, at the time, but... Uh, I don't know. Magic's more interesting. Yeah. I, really, I still like playing sports, though. I, st- right. I also play basketball now, though. Oh, that's cool. Well, you're a tall guy, so, you know, <laughs> you know, at least compared to me, I'm like 5'6", so basketball doesn't work that well. <laughs> um, but uh, in broad terms, you know, you seem to prefer control decks. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, my favorite deck is the deck. And every deck that's like the deck, you know? Just okay. a control deck that just grinds out card advantage, that has reactive elements, library manipulation, tutors... And lots and lots and lots of lines of play so that I can inevitably win with one of my few durable, large, uh, you know, expansive victory conditions, you know. Fair enough. So, so pre-World Wake, what's your favorite deck? Um, you know, what was your favorite deck, I guess, before last week? What deck uh, did you without play? World Wake? Without World Wake. Because uh, my favorite deck is Let's Play Extended. Yeah. <laughs> Fair yeah, enough. I mean, I guess, I mean, Grixis and Red, White, Blue are okay, but I don't... I don't think that they're necessarily that good, and uh, I mean, Grixis isn't even really the same as a control deck. It's not a the deck at all. It's like this combo deck that casts Cruel Tomato. It's yeah. got one big spell, you know. It's <laughs> like a tooth and nail deck, sort of, but it's all blue, you know. Yeah. And then like uh, the the red white blue deck is sort of a hodgepodge collection of good cards that I don't know. Without World Wake, I don't know if it's got as. I mean, it's a good enough deck. It's just I don't know. I wasn't loving the blue decks, even though they were good. It's just. You have to really, really, really anticipate what you're going to play against, unless you have a card like Jace to overpower everybody. Right. So now, now speaking of which, we have World Wake. So, what do you think? You think those decks will continue on now with the addition of World Wake and actually be more? Well, they they were good before. You know, Red, White, Blue, and Grixis are two of the best decks already, and every like lots of decks gain a lot of stuff. World Wake, but they actually all net lose because every single deck that doesn't have Jace the Mind Sculptor in it has to now deal with the fact that other decks have Jace the Mind Sculptor in it. Fair enough. I feel like uh, these questions that I came up with before the cruise for the podcast audience sure, sure. Um, were sort of answered in what you spoke about yesterday, which I did record. I'm not sure how much the audio came out, so and I think some of these I feel like are, are pretty obvious, but your favorite card in World Wake? <laughs> Jace the Mind Sculptor. <laughs> okay. Quite possibly my favorite card of all time. Really, really? That's, that's I think so. I, I, I'm more and more. I think it might be. It just depends on if it turns out to be a blood braid elf type of thing where it's not fun when everybody does it. Yeah. Because cryptic command was fun even when everybody did it for me. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I love, love cryptic card, command yeah. even when everybody else did. You know, cryptic command. I, I, I love a cryptic command. Uh, blood braid elf. I thought I was going to love, but I ended up disliking because when everybody did it, it wasn't fun anymore. Right. I think Chase. I'm going to end up liking the best because it's everything I. Like, it's everything I like about magic. I mean, yeah. it's, I mean, it's like, it's card advantage, library manipulation, a million different choices. I mean, each of its million, it's got more choices than any other Planeswalker, and each choice has many multi- many ways to use it. I mean, it's like, and then uh, it bounces things, which I just absolutely love, and there's uh, 
all this little Eric Lauer experience where we're doing all this stuff but nothing's really going on. Right, and right. then it does all, it creates these situations where your opponent doesn't even realize why it is they're losing. Like they think that the that the lightning bolt you drew or the you know the cancel or whatever other mm-hmm. spell they think those cards did something, but it's actually just. Jace did everything. And right. then it's also a victory condition, so you don't have to play with bad cards that just try to win the game. You know, you just Jace. Yeah, that's a, uh, one of the things I heard you say yesterday was um, why even play things like Baneslayer? Or, or, well, it's less necessary to play creatures as victory conditions when you've got like the Manlands and Jace. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It depends on what kind of deck you're playing. I mean, right. I think creatures are really, really powerful. I mean, right. Baneslayer is a very powerful more like card. A, a but yeah, to, to, to stick a victory condition in because you have to. You know, like, mm. like a lot of people play Sphinx to draw out because they have to, right? But if you play Jace, there's a lot less pressure on you to have to come up with a victory condition. Right. You know, especially if you have Manlands also. Um, one of my questions was, you know, do you have uh, a favorite magic card ever? So before... You know, Before Jace. Jace, it was Cryptic Command. Cryptic Command, okay. So it sounds like uh, Wizards is kind of doing a good job of making, making a card that I would enjoy to play. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> sure. They, good job! Yes. Ken uh, Nagel, you are the man! <laughs> um, uh, if you could actually change one thing about Standard, would is there anything you would change? What would it be? Uh, I mean, it's really hard to tell now because standard is completely different now than it was a week ago. Right. I mean, it's completely different. World Wake changes standard more than almost any set, like, I don't know, in a long time. It's crazy how much World Wake changes things. So I think that I don't know what standard is really going to be like. I have a theory. Okay. But I think that it's going to evolve, and it's too early to tell. Uh, if you would ask me a week ago what would I do to change standard, I would have said make blue good. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, here we are. Here we are. Let's uh Yeah, let's go to the conference briefly for yeah. uh, the Ken Nagel experience. Yes, exactly. So th- this is uh in regards to your book Next, Le- Next Level Magic, which was released back in the spring. Uh yeah, I'm actually uh releasing a paperback book, Next Level Magic, that um, builds on what was in the ebook and uh the ebook is two hundred and fourteen pages just jam packed with uh with uh all sorts of content, you know, strategy as well as stories and and uh, how to think about the game, not just, you know, how to build a mana ratio, right? But in, also that. But uh, I've actually expanded on it quite a bit. There's 40% more content, and, uh, and plus it's been reformatted to actually be a large uh, large paperback size, and it's 420 pages, so it's turned out to be quite extensive. I thought I was just going to do a few revisions here and there, and then I just started adding sections and writing more chapters, and, and I'm kind of excited. I've been working on it for quite a number of months now. We're getting ready to release it in, uh, I think we're trying to, well, I don't know the exact date, but somewhere around the end of March or so. Somewhere oh, around that, yeah. you know. Um, who is that being released? Like, who are, well, I'm, who I'm, pu- I'm self-publishing, or? but oh, it's wow, going to be okay. distributed most primarily through StarCityGames.com. Okay. Any idea is it going to be the same price point as the ebook, or any idea well, on that? One of, the, one of the big obstacles that we've come into is that uh, when you don't own a publishing company or a printing press, it's uh, <laughs> a lot more expensive to print a book. Right, and, right. Uh, and um, all that information will be available later, but okay. it will probably end up being more expensive than the ebook, just as a matter of necessity. I mean, okay. the, there was a lot more costs that went into making it, plus manufacturing the physical books is an expensive process. So, right. but you know, uh, an awful lot of people have uh, messaged me asking about if there is a uh, if there is a paperback in the works or anything like that, and there definitely is. And uh, I'm very very proud of how it turned out. I'm definitely. Looking forward to reading the uh, the differences. I I, uh, I bought the ebook and printed it out, and have it in a binder. So it's uh, had to make my own print version. But um, is there actually going to be any sort of 
price break for anything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Actually, that's one of the things that I talked about with Pete, and that's that uh, we're going to be offering a discount to people that uh, that have already purchased the ebook. You know, okay, like because I mean that's only fair. The main thing is that we I mean, we got to cover all the costs right, of, of the uh, the physical manufacturing, and then obviously there's a lot of work that goes into it. But at the same time, anybody who actually bought the ebook instead of just yeah, I mean, like there's any number of ways with. Especially with electronic electronic media, that if somebody wanted to steal it, they they could. But right. we do want to you know give a thank you to the people who actually did buy the ebook, and because I mean a paperback isn't going to be the same type of thing. There isn't going to just be this way to you know Here you know, torrent steal the, uh, right. the paperback, you know. But at the same time, we want to thank the people who actually went out and supported the cause and purchased the uh, the ebook initially, you know. Cool. So. As far as writing that, what were uh, were there a lot of difficulties in trying to write something that would kind of be timeless, or, or at least apply? I mean, a lot of the the original ver- or the ebook version uh, reference things like Blood Braid Elf, which you know, two years from now are only going to be rele- relevant and extended, or a year from now, you know, things like that. Um, well, there's definitely some challenges. Like I, I thought I had, you know, like when I. Like Next Level Magic uh, as an ebook was written with that in mind, but when I went back to do the revisions, you know, uh, even just nine months later, magic can change pretty quickly. You know? Right. So I went back and changed all the examples to be the most current limited format, and that limited is the big one where it's always going to con- yeah. you know, be in flux. But but uh, you can talk about like sometimes it's good to give examples that are like give a couple examples where one is something that's going on with today's cards, and one is something that's going on with cards from eight or nine years ago because it's such a different. In such a different world, and then somebody can see the parallels and try to imagine, you know, maybe eight years from now. Right. You know, um, so I, I, there's a, there's more to write about magic that could ever be written in just one book. So I think that it, I just wrote the things that I could that were timeless, and a lot of the more timely matters. Those are the types of things that people should talk about in articles. You know. Right. Right. Yeah. They're definitely. Like there's no like they're like. There's no deck lists, you know. That's mm-hmm. not that's not what it's right. about, you know. And they're not going to be of very much use for very long, you know. Even well, oh yeah, if I printed any, right, right, right. like it might be cute at first, but all those deck lists are available in my articles. Yeah. Know? So I mean, this is not what's in my articles. You know, this is right. very very different material, and it's material that's outside the scope of my regular articles. Where, I mean, some of the material crosses over a little bit. Like I've talked about Jedi line tricks and tempo a bit, but. But a lot of the time, some of the fundamental things are not the type of things that I'm gonna that I'm gonna talk about in an article, because well, for one thing, a lot of the time they involve a lot more than you could say in just you know five thousand words. You right. know, it's like well, there's several chapters involved where you have to, you know, you have to build up to something and provide some basic components and work your way towards it. Now I could run a uh, a my fires style article and just have twenty thousand words dedicated over you know <laughs> x number of days, but but uh, I thought that. By being by making it one large book, uh, it made it easier to build towards a general direction and uh, and then have different parts link back to each other. And uh, I'm I'm really proud of how it turned out, and I think that it offers an awful lot beyond just what you get out of reading articles. You know, as, yeah. I mean, as, ask anybody who read the right. book. You know? it, it, it certainly is and more and more and better of that. You yeah. Know? <laughs> Exactly. Might be careful. It's my puke right there. Go walking in. Oh, wait. I almost did. Wait on your mom. Yeah, she probably doesn't even realize we're recording. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. We're in the hallway of a cruise yeah, yeah, ship. Yeah, it's we can't all good. expect people to be quiet. Well, I still want to walk in puke. Right, no, that, I wouldn't want to walk in the puke I either. almost did. <laughs> That's um, so another thing that you mentioned that you uh, maybe wrote some about was your theory of everything. That was 
an article. Some of my, yeah, I, I, I don't know if it's my theory of everything. It's more just, oh, I guess my language for describing what's going on in a game of Magic. Okay. You know? Because, like, um, it's, like, uh, I know that AJ Sasher and Mike Flores recently have been... Uh, talking a little bit about this idea of describing everything in terms of mana. Mm-hmm. Um, but Matt's probably makes a very good point that at the end of the day you're just talking about you're you're just talking about gains and losses or up and down or positives and negatives or pros and cons or good and bad. It, I mean, when you're talking about mana, you're just using it as a language to describe how much value you're getting. Or it could be any word you want. You just pick a word. Like, there's things that you want and... Uh, you want to have more and better of this stuff, that right. value, that uh, like Flores and AJ Sasher talk about mana, the amount of mana that you spend. But then they end up describing it in terms of, uh, oh, when you combo off with a dread return in a dredge deck, it's like you spent, tw- it's like you made 24 mana because right. they add up all these numbers. But you didn't actually spend 24 mana, you, you might have spent zero, right? So really it's not about how much mana you spend, it's about how much value you got because all those, spending mana doesn't mean anything in Magic. Like you could have you know, if you just have uh, an artifact that you can pump mana into, you know, you can just pump 24 mana into something all day, and that doesn't do anything. Right. You know, really what you're concerned about is not the amount of mana you spend, but the amount of value you get. And uh, in the article I wrote recently, The Theory of Everything, it attempted to describe this gain versus negative in terms of uh, the manipulation of three basic resources, uh, card economy, tempo, and the philosophy of fire. And... That's nothing more than just continuing on the years and years of language and, and technology and ideas that we've been using, but expanding them a little bit to involve, res- to, to more clearly define what types of resources are each of these and defining things in such a way so that every single type of resource is one of these three, you know? But that's, I mean, it's kind of a subject that I could spend several hours talking about and at the end of the day, it might only be about as useful as string theory to uh, just be talking about right here. The long and the short of it is that it is good to have a framework for discussing these types of ideas, you know. And the most useful takeaway is that when you see something, when you develop some sort of a mental shortcut that relates to tempo, then uh, if it's true in one area, it will often be, it will often be true in another area. Um, or same with card economy and with philosophy of fire. And like an example of how that works is like the philosophy of fire, under my theory, is essentially a measure of the resources that you begin the game with but do not get naturally over time, such as the cards in your library or uh, your ability to consume more poison counters or your 20 life points. If you don't try, you're not going to get any more of those. And the... Uh, <laughs> it seems like... Yeah, it looks like there's a party developing right outside the interview. Right, right. <laughs> uh, the... So the philosophy of fire covers those different types of resources, and it's very possible that you can develop some shortcuts about direct damage and the way direct damage interacts with your life total. And then if you face this new situation where somebody's using a spell that just mills five cards off your library, you can actually draw some parallels between the direct damage in your life total and the milling card and the cards in your library. And what might be true for one can be true for another. And the same is true for tempo with other, when you're dealing with any kind of a resource that you do not begin the game with but gain over time, you know, a transient resource such as the ability to attack or the ability to untap. And, and then with card economy, when you're dealing with any sort of resource that has permanence, uh, that some kind of resource that you begin the game with and get over time, such as cards that can affect things, you know. 
Right. But uh, sounds like we might need to actually move now because uh, yeah. this area is getting getting really loud. Yeah. Which is I just don't think it's been this loud all week. Let me see. I think that was that was pretty much it. Um, and yeah, we can definitely talk later in the week too. You know. Oh, that's cool. So okay, yeah, if I think pleasure. of something else. So yeah, thank you very much, Patrick. Today I'm going to talk about uh, World Wake's impact on Type 2, and there actually is more to it than Jason Light Sculpture is good. Uh, as I alluded to in, uh, in my discussion with Evan, uh, I think that there's basically three different types of, of uh, archetypes that are going to, every, every deck's going to sort of split into... Oh, I see what you mean. Much better. Do you have any like one of those Madonna headsets? I don't know. Is there a mic stand? There's a mic stand. Wanna switch over to this one? Nah, you know what? No. Okay. For real. Alright, in Type 2, I think every major deck is going to end up looking like a Tectonic Edge deck, a Bloodbraid Elf deck, or a Jace the Mind Sculptor deck. And that's because uh, the Jace the Mind Sculptor is going to end up being the most powerful card, and it's going to shape all the different sort of blue decks and controlling decks around it. But uh, the only, wait, I guess the only ways that I can think of to fight it at this point are to either be uh, really fast, or I guess the mid-range, or I guess theoretically a combo deck. And the, uh, I don't see the combo deck yet, that's so I didn't mention as the fourth archetype. But uh, I think all the really fast decks are going to be Tectonic Edge decks. And I think that the, uh, which I think is going to really hurt Boros. Because without, unless you can just play Tectonic Edge in addition to your regular lands, you know, which is possible. But uh, let me start with why I think Jace the Mind Sculptor is going to define the format and warp everything else around it. Uh, first of all, aside from its power level, um, it solves all of the problems that, like every single problem that every blue deck was looking for. Because you don't really need to counter spells. I mean, like a lot of people, like what do you ask for? You want uh, you want cheap library manipulation, you want powerful cards, you want, you know, you want to be able to control the board, you want whatever, all these different things that you might want to do. As long as you're just willing to give up having good counter magic, you can, uh, you can get that all from Jace and the cards that go along with it. Um, the Halmar Devs Treasure Hunt combo is going to forever be linked with Jace. I mean, it's always, like, Jace, there is no format where Jace is played, where those cards, where Jace is viable, where those cards aren't also an option, you know? So you have to take that as part of the package with Jace, you know? And, uh, I guess first let me sell you on his power level, as if that was necessary. Uh, brainstorming is way better than drawing a card. There's a reason why Brainstorm is restricted in Type 1. It, give, it lets you see cards to find answers as fast as Ancestral Recall. You know, and you have plenty of cards to put back. I mean, you have all these really bad counter spells that are half are probably the wrong one for the situation. You know, and you have fetch lands, which you should probably be playing anyway. And uh, and then uh, as far as his balance ability, his balance ability. A lot of people wonder why does it start as min at minus one? You know, why is the balance ability the one you have to pay for, and the brainstorming one free? And that's because the brainstorming one is more or less. It's always as good as it is, and it's. I mean, it's a stronger ability. But the the unsummon one, when you want it, you want it really bad. Like, it's really, really important to have. So it's well worth paying for, you know? I mean, as a matter of fact, I think that the unsummon ability in Jace alone invalidates probably half the decks that people think are actually viable. Because uh, if, like, look at all the, like, for instance, take Mono Green. Mono Green should be a good deck. It already is an existing deck, and it gained tons of new tools. 
But if Monogreen's going to survive, it's going to have to adapt to a world where if they tap out for a Leatherback Bailoth, the other guy can just go, Chase, bounce your Bailoth. And you just lost, like you lost so much position. You spent your turn and they spent their turn, and now they just have a Jace on the battlefield. And if you don't have if you don't have a card like Oblivion Ring or a Lightning Bolt or Bloodbraid Elf to fight it, then you're going to be in kind of bad shape. So I think that you have to, if you're going to play a deck like that, and it's fine if you are, but if you're going to play a deck like that, you want to have a lot. And I'm not just talking like four Vampire Hex Mages. And that's a good start if that's you know if you're playing that kind of deck. But you need to have a lot of ways to be able to beat Jace. Because you need to be able to count on having one at all times. Because if you let the guy start jacing, it's going to get worse for you really fast. I mean, the way you know it's over is as soon as he looks at the top of your library and says you can keep it, you're <laughs> sure. It's not getting any better. <laughs> and then you don't even need victory conditions anymore. You know? Like, a lot of people play Sphinx of Jar Isle, and they only play it because it's a hard to kill victory condition that kind of hoses Jund a little bit. But I mean, in the future, why do you even need that? Like, why can't Jace just kill people for you? You know, you might have one in case they thought hemorrhage your Jaces or something weird like that. But in reality, you just win with your man lands, you know? Because you don't really actually, I mean, once you Jace somebody, they end up dying. I mean, they never end up dying because they always quit. But, like, <laughs> I don't know, I mean, I, I, so far we've played hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of games of testing. Like, our, my, the whole uh, playtest group that I'm, I'm working with. Nobody has ever beat Jace, like a, uh, a ultimate Jace. So, I mean, I'm sure, obviously, theoretically, it's possible, but the thing is, if there was a board state where you could actually lose, you wouldn't be fate sealing him every turn. You'd be looking for some answers with Brainstorm, you know? Or they'd be attacking Jace. I don't know. So, anyway, the point is, Jace is unbelievably powerful, and it's, I, I think, it's better than every single card since Skullclamp, except maybe Cryptic Command and Jitai for type two, and uh, and the way to fight it, well, one way to fight it, the mid-range sort of way to fight it is with Bloodbraid Elf, because Bloodbraid Elf is a car is one of the few cards that's actually in the same league in terms of power of Jace, you know. But uh, there's really not a lot more for for Jund to do besides what it's already doing. Like Jund is already the Bloodbraid Elf deck, right? Now it's possible if you can come up with a better Bloodbraid Elf deck, you know, great. You know, maybe there's some Naya deck or some new brew of your own, like some red green deck. I don't know. But a Bloodbraid Elf deck, your answer to Jace is sort of a, well, you got Jace, well, I have Bloodbraid Elf. And that's at, least, that's at least that's in the same league as powerful. And it, it naturally beats it, you know, because if you play Bloodbraid Elf, you can just attack Jace immediately. Bloodbraid Elf's a very good weapon against Jace. Now, a lot of people I know don't want to play Jace, or don't like playing Jace, but one option, if you, you want to win without Jace, is to, you know, just give in to Bloodbraid Elf. And then, uh, as far as Tectonic Edge goes, it's sort of the only other, it's like, it goes into the strategies that are the only other way out other than if you can make a combo deck. And that's like uh, a Mono Black Vampires, Mono Green, Mono White, Green White, Naya, any of these type of, uh, Mono Red, I mean, any of these types of decks that the idea is they're just gonna bash you and not let you do all your powerful stuff. And Tectonic Edge is the perfect complement to those decks, especially since so many of them are either monocolor or have neither relic race in them, you know? And uh, the Knight of Reliquary is particularly important to mention because aside from just being a particularly powerful card, a lot of people are not going to be able to, like, if, you, if your Knight of Reliquary lives, they're not going to be able to beat you because you can fetch up that land that gives your guy protection from the color of your choice, or you can just start fetching up man lands or tectonic edges. I mean, Knight of Reliquary is much more vulnerable than uh, a lot of creatures, but it starts having a game-winning impact really, really fast. So if you don't want to play Blood Raid Elf or Jace, 
then I mean that that's a really good way to you know a road to consider. And uh, I think that uh, let's see other changes from World Wake. Uh, oh, if if you're playing a deck that doesn't have manlands in it, you should probably start adding some manlands. Now the obvious exception is well, what if my deck is monocolor? And and that's a tough one. I'm not sure how to resolve it yet because. Uh, the manlands are way better than most of the monocolor cards. But uh, one solution that we've been kind of fond of is making like a mono white deck that just splashes green for Nether Royal Quarry off of like Sun Petal Grove and the green white manland and like, you know, a couple basics or something. Um, another option is to just play with the colorless manlands like Gargoyle Castle or the one that costs, what is it, Dread Sanctuary? Yeah, but those aren't as powerful as the good ones. Uh, another option is to just tectonic edges and just plan on winning the mainland fight by stripping your opponent, you know, strip mining him every turn. Because remember, you can actually, uh, you can also double strip mine somebody on turn four. You know, you can use two of them. They just have to have four in play when you activate them. Um, so I guess, I guess I would say to Evan's question about uh, not winning with Jace, be very, very, very aggressive. You know? um, as far as a combo deck goes, I guess it's possible that there's some kind of a combo deck, but uh, I don't know what it is. And it seems kind of like a hostile time for combo decks because the aggro decks are going to be really, really, really fast and playing with land destruction. And then Jund is going to be playing with lightnings and, and discard, and, and uh, control decks are actually viable, so they're going to have counter magic and um, some other things to consider, like uh, Oblivion Ring has gained a lot in value because it can actually kill Jace. You know? And I know this sounds kind of boring, but I promise you, you're you're going to be way more bored of Jace six months from now than you are now. <laughs> That's probably not the best PR for Magic, right? <laughs> uh, I guess I, I kind of what I'd like to do is um, field some questions, if anybody has questions on uh, different archetypes, how they'd be evolving, possible additions from World Wake. Because I think just like every single deck gets cards, you know? Every single deck has cards that are being added to it as a result of World Wake. I mean, if any of you guys played much with Future Sight, it was the same type of thing where there's tons of powerful cards that at first didn't get that much respect because they were all just super spike cards. You know, everybody can figure out, oh my gosh, this guy's a 6-6 flying trampler with no drawback for 4 mana. That's pretty good. But then they get hung up on cards like that instead of looking at the cards that actually do what the format calls for, you know? So, yeah? Yes, I have a question about your thoughts on Amulet and Vigor, given the fact that almost every single lane comes <laughs> now, Amulet of Vigor is definitely a card after my own heart. Uh, if, if it was a land that tapped for a colorless, I would be all about it. The problem is that uh, it's one of those cards where in order to make it good, you have to build a deck that isn't good unless it gets it. You know? <laughs> now, you know what I mean? Because, I mean, like obviously the temptation is to play tons of non-basic lands that come into play tapped because not all the lands that come into play tapped are just awesome. You know? But if you don't draw the amulet, you're actually going to be pretty far behind, right? And But then if you do draw the amulet, you're not really getting paid enough to be worth it because all you're really getting is an extra mana every turn, but you're setting yourself back a mana every turn to get in that position. So really what you're getting is all your lands are much, much better, but the but you can accomplish that same thing by just playing Everflowing Chalice. If you just play an Everflowing Chalice in the second turn, you can get ahead by one mana so that from now on, every time that you play a tap land, you're still ahead of mana anyway, you know? And at least Everflowing Chalice doesn't require you to bend your deck around having all these lands that enter the battlefield tap. 
because there's no question, it's, it takes a lot of discipline to not play all these incredible ants that, you know, like, why not just gain a life from, you know, Kabir Crossroads, who needs a plane when I can just gain two more life? You know, but you have to just be disciplined and, uh, and make sure that your deck is consistent, you know? And I think that the amulet, the better way to do the amulet is to build a deck that does something really sick if it has the amulet. Like, if you have some kind of crazy combo, because if you can get, like, two amulets or something, you can start netting mana. So if you can figure out something to do with that, where you can set up some combo to get a bunch of amulets, now we're talking. Or, here's the better thing. And this is what, like, I was talking to Herbert Hall, so I was like, man, is there any way we can amulet? You know we would love to do it. And he said, is there, is there at least one other card besides your land that work well with it? You know, if there's, like, if there was some artifact that was just enters the battlefield tapped, you know, tapped to draw a card or something, you know, or whatever, some kind of effect where you have another combo besides your mana, then it might be worth it. Yeah? What, what would you say the effect of uh, the vigor in the... Um, the Jund deck. Let's see. With, with adding the Manlands to the Jund deck, and you already have the need with your uh, come into play tap lands to speed it up. Uh, the problem you're going to run into is every time your opponent plays a Bane Slayer Angel, and you play a Bloodbraid Elf, and you go to flip, and it's an am amulet. <laughs> it's, it's, the problem is that it messes up your cascade, you know? At the end of the day, like, I mean, I see what you're saying. You know, like you want to. You want the extra pay? Or, I mean, you want the. Uh, uh, you want to kill the you, you would love to have it just start on on the battlefield. Like if you could just, you know, work in a coal mine for a couple hours in exchange for having the start of the battlefield. <laughs> but you don't want to actually. Where's the coal mine? <laughs> I'm there. You don't want to actually have to spend mana or the card or have it in your deck. But it's it's one of those cards that just sounds like it'd be really nice if it was just on on the battlefield. But having to put it in your deck in the first place has a number of costs that go along with it. And then having to find some way to search for it to get it there. See, if you're searching All for an artifact and then anymore. playing it just so that you can untap your land, you could just play land that are untapped. <laughs> That's a lot less work. You had a question? Oh, wow. Sorry. Sorry. A lot of heavy questions. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, let's see. As far as extended goes, I think World Wake's actually going to have an impact on extended as well. Now, perhaps not as much, but uh, first of all, Jace, the Mind Sculptor, will be good in extended also. You know, I mean, it's going to be a little slow to set on at first, but like Cryptic Command, eventually people are going to just start playing with it when their decks, you know, adapt. And uh, um, let's see. As far as drafting goes, have you guys drafted this set much? Yeah. What do you guys think? Power level high. Power level high. No, it's definitely definitely high power level. But it's kind of nice that white that uh, the red is the worst in the last set, so that it drops down a little bit to make it a little more balanced. And black isn't particularly good. Like it's decent in the last set. And black's still probably the best color overall. But. Um, Blue and green being much better in the last set seems to uh, help the draft format out quite a bit. Um, I guess I don't have too much more beyond just, you know, I'd like to talk to you guys one-on-one -on -one just throughout the week, but one last thing I wanted to... Oh, please. Oh, yeah. One question. What do you feel, how do you feel about Searing Blaze? Searing Blaze? Sure. It's it's like a lash-out that always hits, but you ha your opponent has to actually have the guy, right? 
So I think that if you're playing in a format where people actually have creatures that searing, like if you can reliably actually cast searing blaze, the card becomes pretty awesome, you know? Because for two mana, doing three damage to a creature, if they have creatures, is is a good deal. And if they, you know, if you do three damage to your opponent for two mana, that's often a good deal. And it does both for just the two mana. I think that the problem is that type two seems like it's going to sort of pull towards a direction where people are playing sprouting Thrynexes and uh, <laughs> Jace the Mind Sculptors and Celestial Colonnades and it might end up being kind of a hostile format for it. But if you're playing in a format where a bunch of people are playing vampires and green creatures and white weenies and coarse, you know, I mean, like if they're playing a if they're playing a bunch of targets, then the card's awesome. So I think it might be a good cyborg card for the time being. And if you're pretty sure that your metagame has live targets, then you can play it. The big problem with it that holds it back is that you can't just hit your own creature to burn your opponent. You know. Uh, what, what do you think is going to happen with uh, the old Jace? Do you think it's going to just disappear from uh, from Type 2, pretty much? No, no, no. see, that's, that's a tricky one, because eventually there might be some future where things are so warped around Jace that people are playing bad Jace just to preemptively <laughs> make it so that your opponent can't play good Jace on his turn. You know, because, like, if you're behind... Like, you know what I mean? So you just put out bad Jace and draw a card, and you're like, oh, I have a seal of Jace on the table. You know what I mean? Seal of Jace. Absolutely. Like, I mean, like, if you were pretty sure, see, the problem is, the problem with playing bad Jace just to oppose other people's Jaces is that uh, if you play against anybody who doesn't have uh, Jace, it kind of kind of sucks to get stuck in a situation of you have old Jason play and he just won't die fast enough. You know, like if I was an aggro player, my opponent played old Jace, I would not attack him. Every turn that old Jace is in play is another turn that new Jace isn't, you know? But uh, as long as your opponent isn't, I mean, and you might say, oh, well, if you're if you're old Jason, you're winning anyway. But that's not even quite true. You could just draw an extra card every turn and not necessarily, you know, that doesn't necessarily take over the game the same way. So I think that if old Jace has a future, it mostly just revolves around some sort of a new Jace inbred situation. Okay. Truly inbred, I guess. <laughs> yeah. What's your impression of allies? Did Worldwake get them there, or are they still? I see. I'm excited about allies. Uh, I think allies is actually has the potential to be a real deck, a good exist, like a good new archetype, because I think that they pushed it, and they might have pushed it in the right way, and they might have pushed it just enough because. Um, the one-drop ally is obviously going to be key, simply because he's very efficient. You know, he creates these really aggressive muscle sliver type situations. But uh, also, he turns out your Ranger Vios, and that way you actually have a card that's you know, Ranger Vios is a card that's on the power level of cards like Bloodbraid Elf and Jace the Mindsculper. It's it's one of the top most powerful cards, you know. And if your deck if your deck can actually use it, you know, there's an old saying that Ranger Vios is the best card in every deck he, that he's in, you know. So, uh, and then what colors? Well, that's the thing. So to begin with, there's there's Ranger Vios in the one drop, right? Well, at first I thought, oh, the blue shapeshifter ally will be good, right? But then once I got to looking at it, none of the allies I was playing with in my ally decks cost more than two mana anyway. Clone isn't that good of a deal if it's the most expensive card in your deck, right? So uh, the, the one I turned to was the zero one that taps for uh, mana. You know, the Priest of Titania is it Harabaz Her Druid? Druid. Yeah, yeah Harabaz Druid. That guy's pretty awesome. First of all, he solves your mana problem. Second of all, your mana creature crusades all your guys later in the game. 
Third of all, he lets you do things like open into turn three Ranger Vios or turn three uh, Instant Speed Ally or turn three Bloodbraid Elf or a Johnny Venture or whatever good thing you're doing. Or you can just play out a bunch of allies, you know? And they actually chain out really fast because you can tap your lands to cast allies first so that he makes even more mana, you know? And uh, then you can play the Survivalist. You can play the Instant Speed thing, by the way. The Instant Speed, make two allies. That card's great in the right deck. You know, it's funny that just giving it the ally creature type adds so much power, but you gotta think of it as sort of a, uh, for four mana, not only do you get two guys, all your guys get plus two, plus two. You know, and then you play like the Blade Master, the One Drop, the Survivalist, the... Uh, I like the hasty red one. The something. That guy might, and that one might, that one might, that one might work out well too. I managed to draft four of them once, and when I saw them, it was awesome. Yeah, I mean... Two at a time. <laughs> I just pump it out of three. <laughs> the, the key, I think, is going to be that at the end of the day, you probably want to be either a Jace the Mind Sculptor deck, a Bloodbraid Elf deck, or a Tectonic Edge deck. Yeah. And since Jace doesn't really fit into the kind of allies that we're talking about, the question is what fits better, Tectonic Edge or Bloodbraid Elf, you know? If you play Naya, maybe it's Bloodbraid Elf. If you're just playing two colors, like just green-white, then Tectonic Edge, maybe, you know? Yeah. And, but basically, I think, like, I think that if you just put together the good allies, you're... you're over halfway there to a good deck, you just have to figure out the right support spells, you know? And that's going to come with trying to identify what other people are doing. Because you got to make sure that you can actually beat a Jun deck, you know? And at the same time, you actually got to be able to beat a Jace the Mind Sculptor deck. And that's a tricky, that's, I mean, those are two very difficult constraints, you know? Yeah. Uh, I've noticed that uh, most, most people I've talked to that are discussing trying to build the Allies deck, they do tend to focus on there's finally a one drop and there's finally some instant and that really throws you into a hard line for white as a core for a competitive allies deck. Absolutely. So what do you think the odds are that we'll get, I don't know, a black instant return an ally from the grave or something in order to really spread out the color spectrum on that? Are you talking about Rise of the Eldrazi? Or, I'm, I mean, I'm hoping to see one come forward so that you're not locked in, wait, locked in the white. A rise from the grave? Right, so are you talking about a card that exists, or? I'm talking about whether or not, in your experience, because you've had some design experience and all, what do you think the odds are that we see an additional instant speed source for allies in order to spread it out of just a hardcore white? It will probably be a number of years. Because allies is predominantly a limited uh, mechanic, and Rise of the Eldrazi was designed to be played limited separately from Zendikar and Warwick. So I would be surprised if there were many, if any, allies in Rise of the Eldrazi. Now, that said, they will surely revisit allies at some point, and they will surely make an instant speed ally or two, and they will surely give it to a color besides white, but it will probably be five years, you know. Um, doesn't allies just feel really vulnerable to like Earthquake and Day Judgment? Doesn't that just destroy the deck? Uh, yeah, Earthquake and... No, 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 the Earthquake and Day of Judgment are extraordinarily powerful against them. They're a creature-based deck. But uh, creature-based decks have weapons against them. Like, for instance, Ranger of Eos refilling you. Or if you have a mana denial element to keep them off of four mana. Or if you have Planeswalkers to attack from a different direction. Or if you have Eldra uh, Eldrazi Monument so that all your guys are in, you know, indestructible. But you're absolutely right. You can't just play a creature deck and not have a plan for somebody who's going to use sweepers. It just feels like other creature decks, the creatures are powerful in themselves, and allies you need to overcommit to make them powerful, which is kind of awkward when those cards exist. Like, it, I don't know. 
Other people are playing with cards like Sprouting Thrynex and Putrid Leech and Baneslayer Angel. Those are cards that it's like you played a bunch of allies already. You know, they're already good. And so in order for allies to really justify themselves, you're going to have to create a situation where you're reliably pumping them enough to get paid. But it actually doesn't take that much if you play with the good allies because, like, the one drop, if you curve out with a one drop and then a Blade Master and then any other ally, it's like you're hitting your opponent with a Wild Nakato and a First Striking Watch Wolf. Like that actually, I mean, those are card, that's much better than people get in type 2. You know, like a, a real white cow, you know? So you can actually get paid if you come out fast enough, and I think that has to be the bar. You have to play with allies that, uh, that are good enough to be a mediocre card, at least a solid card on their own, and if you play just one more ally, become amazing. In a Blade Master, I mean, a 3-3 three, three for 2 with First Strike and Vigilance is really good. And a mana creature that just taps for two mana of any color is really good, you know? So you, the, the people who talk about playing Umaro Raptor, that's the wrong direction. Because, I mean, not only do you not want a Windrake in Type 2, there's no way in the world you want a 3-3 three, three flyer for 3, you know? So any, any ally you're thinking about playing, one more ally should make the card into a killer, you know? Uh, have you taken a look at Zendikar Block yet? Uh, Zendikar Block? I haven't played Zendikar Block myself, but I know that Michael Jacob has quite a bit. He talks about, um, he says that Vampires just completely dominates the format. And uh, he, he himself plays a Valakut deck and uses a lot of Punishing Fire to try to keep him in check. But uh, he sounded pretty excited about Explore, having the option of Explore and a few other cards for, for, the, for the format. But it doesn't seem like it's a, a constructive format that's going to see much play <coughs> until Rise of the Eldrazi, right? Like, there's one more set before before anybody will be playing block at a super high level, right? Amsterdam, right? Is that the block for Uh Yeah, yeah, I think so. Is it, is it Amsterdam or is it Puerto Rico? Uh, Amsterdam, sure, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I haven't looked at it too much, but I hear Mono Black, is, I hear Vampires is really good, and uh, I know Mike Jacob plays Balakid, so. Yeah, that's why I said, like, I, I haven't given it too much thought, because it's, Plus, with Rise of the Eldrazi, some of the stuff that Rise of the Eldrazi is going to have will surely change things quite a bit, you know? Like, big colorless spells that have lands that make two mana, e the equivalent of making two mana each, so that you get a whole bunch of flame javelin type cards. Or who knows? Who knows? Who knows what could be? This one. No talking, Ken. Shall we talk later? I think, uh, I think we're going to wrap it yep. up. We're, uh, about, we're, uh, we're about an hour off of supper, so I think we'll wrap this. And unless you've got something else specifically you wanted to hit. Sure. All right, cool. Let's uh,
Better.